You are Locked On Bills, your daily Buffalo Bills podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's up, Bills Mafia? It's Joe Marino from the Draft Network, and I'm your host of Locked On Bills. Happy Thursday to you. Today is Herd Mentality on the podcast, the episode each week where you control the discussion by sending in Bills questions, items, takes, whatever you have, and I respond to them here on the podcast. So let's do just that. The first one today comes from Martin, who says, hypothetically, if you had the option to sit down with a specific group of guys and ask up to three questions to each member of the group about anything, which group would you choose? Group A, Josh Allen, Sean McDermott, and Brandon Bean, or Group B, Jim Kelly, Bruce Smith, and Marv Levy. For clarification, this meeting would happen in the present, so no going back and choosing to talk to Group B in the 90s. Also, in this scenario, your group has an endless supply of pitchers filled with your favorite beer. So my answer to this would be Group A. I would want to sit down with Josh Allen, Sean McDermott, and Brandon Bean and ask each one of them three questions much more than the other group. And no disrespect to legends Jim Kelly, Bruce Smith, and Marv Levy, but they are legends. They are from the past. I would want to get to know the current people who are shaping the future of the Buffalo Bills and pick their brains more than I would the uh, the old-time group there. Ted says, Joe, did you work up a scouting report on UDFA Nick McLeod, cornerback out of Notre Dame? Some of his pro day numbers look decent. Can you share any insight you might have on him? So I didn't fully write up Nick McLeod. He actually wasn't in my region for the Draft Network. Uh, but I'm very familiar with him from watching him at NC State. He was there from 2016 through 2019. And if there's any school that I've been to the most for scouting trips, it is NC State. I've been there a ton. And especially in 2016, 17, and 18 when he was a featured player for that defense and a starter in 17 and 18. And I thought he was a pretty average college football player. Good size. He could run. He competed. I just thought he was ordinary. He didn't have anything that really stood out to me in terms of coverage ability or ball skills or coverage instincts, anything like that. So because he was kind of ordinary to me at NC State, I didn't really have a, a great temperature for projecting him to the NFL. And then when he transferred away from my region to Notre Dame, I didn't really keep up with him. And I know he had a pretty good season for Notre Dame on a better defensive unit collectively. So obviously that gave him a, a better environment to, to play his best football. But from what I watched at NC State, I thought he was exactly what he proved to be, an undrafted free agent caliber type prospect. So I don't have super high hopes for him um, in terms of forecasting him based on what I saw at the college level. But just like anyone who is on this Bills roster, I am rooting for them. And I hope he makes noise, and I hope that he winds up being a meaningful player for the Buffalo Bills. The next one today comes from Damian, who says, Personally, I believe I undervalue the talent of players in the NFL because all I watch are the Bills games every week, along with your Thanksgiving games and the playoffs. My question for you is, does the best team in college stand a chance against the worst team in the NFL? You know, this conversation seems to come up every single year, and I'm here to tell you, that there is no chance. They do not stand a chance at all. The worst team in the NFL would destroy 
the best team in college football. It would be a complete bloodbath. You hear it every single year. Could Alabama beat the Jets or the Texans or the Bengals, whatever team happens to be the worst that year? Could Alabama beat them? Could the 2019 LSU Tigers beat them? Not a chance. I mean, even those great college teams, Alabama, LSU, Clemson, whatever one you want to pull, they probably have anywhere from six to 10 NFL caliber players, maybe three to seven of them wind up being a meaningful NFL player versus a roster of all meaningful NFL players that are grown men that have received pro coaching and pro nutrition and pro training regiments. It would not be close. I don't, I don't even think that the college team would have much of a chance to gain any yards. I mean, it would be that type of a embarrassment. It would not be healthy, I'd tell you that. It, it would be an unsafe situation for those kids to go up against these grown men. So, as fun as it is to speculate, no chance. Even if you were to take all of college football and pick a starting lineup, or heck, an entire roster of, of whatever players in college that you want, the NFL team would still destroy them. Even beyond the technique and the mental processing and weeding out the non-meaningful NFL players, the physical maturation difference is too stark for that college team to even have a chance. The next one today comes from Tyler who says, first, who is the Bills draft pick that you were convinced would not be it and has turned out much better than expected? Why did you not like the pick at the time? So Tyler, you didn't give me any date range restrictions here, so I'm going to go back to 2009 in the second round, pick 42. The Buffalo Bills selected Jarris Bird, a safety out of Oregon, and I was not a fan of the pick. He ran a 4.68 40-yard dash and was kind of this safety corner hybrid type player. I just didn't see him succeeding being that slow. And you guys know I love physical traits, and I've learned a lot since then. But I'm still always going to be biased towards guys with ideal size that are quick and explosive as opposed to the guys that aren't that but are just the smart guys that are always where they're supposed to be. So I've learned to blend those a little bit more in my uh, older age. But when the Bills made Jarris Bird the 42nd pick in the draft after running a 4-6-8 and expecting him to play defensive back, I was not high on that selection. Tyler had a follow-up. He said, a few weeks ago, you talked about the question of the kicker with insane accuracy. Here's a different version. Would you rather have a kicker that's 99% from 50 yards and in or a punter that is 100% able to down the ball within the 15-yard line? At first glance, I thought this was a challenging question, and the more I thought about it, the more I am convinced that the right answer is the punter. Because... If I am always forcing you to start inside the 15-yard line, no matter where I am in the field, that is going to make it really difficult for you to score because you're always going to have to cover a lot of yardage to get into scoring range. And NFL kickers from 50 and in are probably above 80%. So maybe even higher, 85%. So I'll take a... 10 to 20% dip in 
accuracy or field goal made percentage from 50 and in to guarantee that I always pin the opposition within the 15-yard line. That's going to make it tough for them to score with consistency. So I'm going with the punter. Tired of getting killed by daily fantasy sports experts? Don't play experts. Play the house with Stat Hero. Introducing Stat Hero, it's the first ever daily fantasy sports book that puts the player in control and winning within reach. Here's how it works. Stat Hero shows you their lineups and dares you to beat them. It's you versus the house in a head-to-head fantasy matchup. You name the stakes, winner takes all. You have the advantage. Stat Hero is showing you their lineups ahead of time. No one else does that. You are in total control. Stat Hero is DFS the way it was meant to be, one-on-one. See the competition ahead of time. Pick the lineup you think you can beat. Go head-to-head with no pool of opponents. Go to stathero.com slash locked on. Sign up for free, and right now, you can get three times back on your first play. They're giving you a 300% match. That's unheard of. Go to stathero.com slash locked on. That's stathero.com slash locked on. RockAuto.com is a family business that's been serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. Go to RockAuto.com right now to shop for auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers. They have everything from engine control modules and brake parts to tail lamps, motor oil, and even new carpet. Whether it's for your classic or daily driver, get everything you need in a few easy clicks delivered directly to your door. The rockauto.com catalog is unique and remarkably easy to navigate. You can quickly see all the parts available for your vehicle and choose the brand, specifications, and prices that you prefer. Best of all, prices at rockauto.com are always reliably low and the same for professionals and do-it-yourselfers. Why would you spend up to twice as much for the same parts? Go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck. Make sure you write Locked On in their How Did You Hear About Us box so they know that we sent you. They have amazing selection, reliably low prices, and all the parts your car will ever need over at rockauto.com. The next one today comes from Corey, who says, One of my first thoughts when Diggs restructured was that they would carry the space into next year with Allen and Edmonds hitting that expensive fifth year. If we do that, it almost seems like a cheat code for more cap. What's stopping teams from doing this every year and constantly rolling over cap space? Is this the method teams like the Saints have used where it always seems like they're against the cap wall but somehow fit everyone on the roster? For example, if we sign a player for $4 million this year with the extra space and carry over the remaining $4 million to next year, doesn't that cover the cost of that new player this year and us and allow us to counteract Diggs' extra money next year? So it's a good question, um, but the way that it is structured is, yes, unused salary cap space from one year rolls over to the next. That is a true statement. However, there is a rule that requires teams to spend at least 89% of their salary cap over a four-year period. And so you can do this, but when you factor in an entire four-year period, you better have spent at least 89% of the salary cap space. So the most recent four-year period began in 2017 and just finished in 2020. So 17, 18, 19, and 20. And a new four-year period begins this year. And so from 2021 across the next four seasons, every team in the NFL has to spend at least 89% of the salary cap space across that span. So 
it's not easy to track or anything like that, but it is a requirement. And so that is the contingency that you need to be aware of when considering teams and their opportunity to take advantage of this. Because otherwise, a team like the Indianapolis Colts, who seem to never spend all of their cap space and keep rolling it over and have you know, 70, 80, 90 million every single year, eventually they have got to spend that or else they are not playing within the rules. And you got to play within the rules. Rock Bills Believe says, I was very high on Marquez Stevenson, and I did a deep dive on some of his film over at Two Bills Drives, infamous, notorious, whatever you want to call it, stadium wall leading up to the draft. I see McKinsey and Stevenson, and to a lesser extent, Brandon Powell, as being in the mix for the kick returner, punt returner, sixth wide receiver spot. Do you believe that Stevenson has a path to the 53? And if so, what is the path? I ask because I would be concerned that he would be snapped up pretty quickly should we risk exposing him to waivers. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the matter. All right, so a couple things here. First of all, I do think there is a path for Marquez Stevenson to make the roster. And number one in his favor is precedent. The only draft pick under Sean McDermott and Brandon Bean that did not make the roster and was outright cut and not like put on the practice squad or put on injured reserve, something like that, was Austin Prohl, wide receiver out of North Carolina. And I honestly think that draft selection was a courtesy selection to his dad, Ricky Prohl, who both Bean and McDermott were familiar with from their time in Carolina because I don't think Austin Prohl was a draftable commodity. And so with that knowledge that if you're drafted by the Bills, you're likely to make the roster based on historical precedent, that works very favorably for Marquez Stevenson. Now, number two, when it comes to making the team, I do believe the Bills will keep six wide receivers. That is what they've taught us, right? They, I mean, that's pretty much the number they go with every single year. So I think you have Diggs, Beasley, Gabriel Davis, Emmanuel Sanders, and Isaiah McKenzie. I think they will claim five of those spots, which leaves one more open for Marquez Stevenson or Isaiah Hodgins, Tanner Gentry, whatever other player you think Jake Kumro has a chance. So should Stevenson prove to be the team's kick returner, which I think there's a very good chance of that happening given how good he was returning kicks at Houston and he learns the offense and shows that he can be that six wide receiver and get some run in a pinch and maybe do some jet sweep stuff and be an extension of what they do with Isaiah McKenzie. I think they'll be quite comfortable with him claiming that six wide receiver spot. Now where it's going to be challenging is Marquez Stevenson doesn't return punts. And that's concerning because you'd like for that guy that sticks around as a six wide receiver slash returner to be able to handle both your kick and punt return duties. Now, if Isaiah McKenzie winds up being the punt returner, I think it is more digestible, but it's less ideal. That was the beautiful thing about Andre Roberts is you committed that wide receiver six spot to him and he was your kick returner and punt returner. So there was a lot of value in having him around. So I think that's the path for him making the roster. Now, you mentioned this concern that if the Bills were to waive him and they had to have him clear waivers to put him on the practice squad, that another team would snatch him up. I'll say two things about that. 
Number one, and I don't have the data in front of me. I wish I did, but somebody out there has this data where it's very rare that this happens, that you release a player and another team signs them to their active roster. So I would put those concerns aside because it doesn't really happen that often. And number two, the NFL said a lot in terms of how they value Marquez Stevenson when he fell to the sixth round and was picked number 203 overall. So while I like Stevenson's skill set, and it sounds like you do, I mean, at the end of the day, this guy fell to outside of the top 200 selections. So it's not like everyone was banging down the door to get this guy. They Everybody pretty much passed on him time and time again. So that's something to be mindful of. And so if the team that drafted him is willing to expose him to waivers after there really wasn't that much interest in him to begin with, I think you have a pretty good chance of sneaking him through the waiver wire process. Justin says, Gregory Rousseau was the fourth edge taken in the draft. Where did you rank him going into the draft, and where did you have him after his only college season? So after evaluating the entire draft class and producing my final draft board, Gregory Rousseau was my number 45 overall player and my sixth ranked edge defender. After I watched him following the 2019 season and I did my summer scouting report and I stacked my initial big board, I had a first-round grade on Rousseau. He was edge one for me. And what I want to say is there is a distinct difference between evaluating players in the summer and evaluating players when it's all said and done, when the entire college resume is complete. I'm doing summer scouting right now, working on players from my region, giving them preliminary grades. And a lot of those grades are contingent on them taking the necessary steps forward to maximize the flashes that I saw on tape. So for a guy like Gregory Rousseau, when you watch him rack up all those tackles for loss and sacks at Miami in 2019, and you see a lot of length and a lot of athleticism and a lot of playmaking ability, and then you're like, wow, this guy's only played defensive line for like one year. He's a former safety and wide receiver, and he's doing all this. This is a guy that has the makings of being a top 10 pick, a high first-round selection. But in the back of your mind, you're you're saying, well, he, he needs technical refinement, and he needs to get stronger, and all, you know, all the things that you're concerned with, but he had a whole season ahead of him to answer those questions. Well, when he didn't play, you're, go, you're left going back to what he was after 2019, which was an exciting football player, but a raw football player. And so because of that, because I had to leave him how I found him because he didn't play in 2020, he dropped a bit for me. Because the questions that I had coming out of 2019 were never answered. So that's kind of how and why that shift happened. And I still had a reasonable rank on him. My number 45 overall player, he went 30. I mean, I was within the right neighborhood for sure. Next one today comes from Mike. Mike says, I enjoyed the Rex Ryan roundtable. Since you were against Rex from the start, who from the list of candidates they interviewed did you want them to hire back then, as well as with hindsight, not considering that Rex's failure 
led to McDermott. Now, that's a good point because if you allow me to make this selection with hindsight, I might pick Rex Ryan because I know if I wait it out, I get Sean McDermott. But I'll be honest with you, the guy that I wanted back then when they were doing interviews and they interviewed this guy was Frank Reich. And I know you're probably thinking to yourself, well, Joe, I mean, did you, are you really just saying that? Are you just telling us that because he's been the best coach out of that group? Let me tell you something right now. I am not a liar. That's one thing that I'm not. You can ask my wife. I, I can't even try to tell lies. I, I've never told a lie in my entire life and got away with it. So understand that I'm a lot of things, but one thing I'm not is a liar. So, so just keep that in mind. I'm being sincere with you. Frank Reich was the guy that I wanted. And it wasn't just the dynamic of him being a, a player for the Bills in the past and, and being a backup to Jim Kelly and um, you know a lot of respect for him during that time in Buffalo. But I, I've told you guys a few times here, his brother Joe Reich coached at Wingate University where my brother played, and my brother was a, uh, a three-time team captain at Wingate, and I got recruited to play at Wingate. And so I have a lot of respect for the Reichs and their leadership style and their character. And so I thought he would be the perfect coach for a Bills team that needed leadership, right? I mean, it was 15 years into the playoff drought and something had to be different. And I thought it was leadership and I thought Frank Reich was the right guy for the job. And he's been absolutely tremendous for Indianapolis. He's maximized that roster. He's had success. I think he's emerging as one of the better coaches in the entire NFL. I'd still rather have McDermott, but instead of Rex back in... uh, was it 2015? I would have much preferred Frank Reich. He was the guy I was hoping they would hire. Next one today comes from Chris. Chris says, I don't remember the year, but I guess around 2009, I went to my first training camp. Prior to this, I had been to many Bills games. I even had season tickets during a couple of the Flutie Johnson years and once met my favorite running back of all time, Barry Sanders, while doing some construction at the Silverdome. But I had never been this close to professional football players in action. I sat down about five rows up from the field and scanned the field looking for linebackers. That was always my favorite position to watch in any football game. To my left was defensive ends. They were running one-on-one drills. Aaron Schobel was freaking my brain out. I had never seen a human being that large move like that. Dude is a freak. A few years later, it happened again when I was watching the receivers running one-on-one drills with defensive backs. And I thought, who is that super quick, agile, humongous wide receiver? It was Charles Clay, a freak of nature at tight end. So now my question, have you ever felt the same way while watching an athlete? If so, who? Yeah, Chris, that happens to me all the time. And I've done a lot of traveling for football, you know, going to practices, going to Senior Bowl, Shrine Game, uh, going to games across the Southeast. And so I've seen a lot of football players up close and personal. So I have a lot of different answers that I want to give you. But um, what I did to make this a very pure process is I didn't go back and like look at anything. I said, all right, who comes to my mind immediately when I think about this scenario? And so these are the names that come to mind, and I'll share them with you. The first one, Nick Chubb, running back at Georgia, current Cleveland Brown. I was at Georgia for a practice uh, a few summers ago. Uh, getting a chance to to take in a practice and, and watch their team. And they had a lot of tremendous athletes. But Nick Chubb was somebody that I watched and said, that dude is different. 
The way he moved, his size, his body composition, the way he carried himself, it was exceptional. And he stood out amongst a lot of very talented Georgia Bulldog football players. The next one is Cam Newton, quarterback from the Carolina Panthers. I go to Panthers training camp every year, and every year I marvel at Cam Newton's physique. And obviously he's not there now, but I mean, you you get up close to Cam Newton, you see just how rare he is, like his body composition. He's got long arms. He's thick everywhere. I mean, that dude is a freak, an absolute freak. The next one, and I only wanted to do one senior bowl player because I've been to the senior bowl like five or six times, and obviously I'm up close to those players, and I could probably sit here and list them all day long. But the one guy that just, I mean, left my jaw dropping was O.J. Howard, tight end from Alabama at the time. And we interviewed him, and Kyle Krabs did the interview, and I was just standing there watching the interview, but I didn't hear a word that was said because I was really in awe of just the the physique and just how long and athletic he was. Uh, the next guy that I'll mention is Lamar Jackson, quarterback at Louisville. I saw him play at Wake Forest and NC State, and the quickness, right? Like You just don't see somebody with the ball in their hands move like he does. And, you know, you see him drop back to pass and he's scanning the field. It's how quick he takes off when he accelerates. I mean, the guy was different for sure. Uh, Tremaine Edmonds, linebacker from Virginia Tech. I saw him in Blacksburg against Pittsburgh. And then I also went to their bowl game uh, in Orlando against Oklahoma State, the uh, Camping World Bowl a game that Brandon Bean was also at. And you just get eyes on Tremaine Edmonds, and, I mean, you see him. You see him out there playing middle linebacker for the Bills. He's tall, he's long, he's athletic, just looks different. Jalen Waddell, uh, wide receiver from Alabama. I was at Alabama LSU in 2019 in Tuscaloosa when Joe Burrow and the LSU Tigers knocked off Nick Saban's Alabama Crimson Tide in Tuscaloosa. But Jalen Waddle, man, this guy, unbelievable speed. He had a punt return for a touchdown in that game, just moving at a different pace. I mean, unbelievable speed and quickness. And the last guy that I'll mention is Raquan Davis. He's a current defensive tackle for the Miami Dolphins. And a few months ago, I was in Miami, Florida for the HOA scouting combine. It was done at House of Athlete. It's a gym that's owned by Brandon Marshall. If you guys follow Stephon Diggs, on Instagram, you'll see that he's been working out there a ton, and a lot of NFL players go there and work out. And so we were just kind of hanging out for a little bit after uh, watching some drills, and we were in the gym, and all of a sudden, Raquan Davis walked in, and like, I mean, he's just massive. He's like six foot seven, 350 pounds, but he's not fat, uh, just thick everywhere. Unbelievable physical specimen. And I've been, I've seen Shaquille O'Neal in person, like, I was in downtown Charlotte when he was playing with, I don't know, the, the whatever team, the Lakers probably, and we were going to a Bobcats game. And um, Ishaq was walking from the hotel to the team bus, and, and I was within you know just a few feet of him. And I remember this is the largest human being I've ever seen in my entire life. Like It took me to a weird place. And I've also seen Yao Ming when he was playing for the Houston Rockets. I... I had lower-level seats to that Bobcats game, and I remember just being in awe of how massive that human being was. So after Shaq and Yao Ming, Raekwon Davis is the largest human being I've ever seen with my own eyes. 
Need to tell you guys about Built Bar. It's the best tasting protein bar on the planet. So many amazing flavors. They're all delicious. They're all covered in 100% chocolate. They're soft and easy to chew. It's like eating a candy bar, but it's good for you. Built Bars are great for anyone who is health conscious. Whether you want to lose weight, maintain weight, or just indulge in a delicious treat, you got to try Built Bars. They're low calorie, low sugar, high protein, high fiber, and perfect for anyone who is on the keto diet. Got a deal for you? Go to BuiltBar.com and use promo code LOCKED15 and you'll get 15% off your next order. Again, that's promo code LOCKED15 for 15% off at BuiltBar.com. Next one today comes from Michael who says, You mentioned wins are strongly correlated with scoring points when talking about the Julio Jones trade. Overall, do you think the Titans offense is better or worse after losing Jonu Smith and Corey Davis and gaining... Julio Jones? It's a good question. Um, I think we have to operate under the assumption that everyone is healthy because Julio Jones has battled some injury stuff lately. So has Corey Davis. So that is something to keep in mind. And while I love Corey Davis and I think he's a really good football player, Julio Jones is better. And so, again, assuming everyone is healthy, Julio Jones is an upgrade over Corey Davis. Now, is he enough of an upgrade to also cover the loss of Jonu Smith? Here's what I'll say about that. Jonu Smith is a good football player, very good after the catch. He's a good athlete. But he was a beneficiary of the Titans' scheme and the way they played offense. A lot of misdirection, a lot of play action, a lot of leaking him into space, a lot of putting him in motion and creating advantageous angles for him to catch the football. The scheme really helped Jonu Smith produce. And they got a guy there, Anthony Ferkser, that I think can do a lot of the same stuff that Jonu Smith did and help replace that production. So while I don't think Smith is that big of a loss, and I think Ferkser can step in and be serviceable, and I think that Jones is an upgrade to Davis, I think that the current state of this offense is better than it was when it had Corey Davis and Jonu Smith. Kyle says, do you think Josh Allen is the only current quarterback in the AFC East that will be starting for their current team on opening day in 2025? In other words, do you think Mac Jones, Zach Wilson, and Tua Tungavailoa are able to establish themselves as legit NFL-quality starting quarterbacks that get or are deserving of a second contract. A big part of the Patriots' dynasty was obviously dominating the division, and a big part of that was ourselves, the Jets, and Dolphins constantly having a revolving door at the most important position. Not to get ahead of ourselves, but I think the Bills and Allen are going to have a great shot at controlling the division year in and year out for the foreseeable future based on the fact that I believe that Josh is going to be the best quarterback in the division until someone proves otherwise, whether that's two in next year, someone in 2025, or someone in 2030. It's nice to have the most important position in sports established for our franchise. Absolutely. Absolutely. Josh Allen is by far the best quarterback in the AFC East, and I think he will be a better pro than anything the Jets, Patriots, or Dolphins currently have including their new young quarterbacks, right? Zach Wilson, Tua Tungavaloa, and Mac Jones. So the core question is, in 2025, are these guys going to be around outside of Josh Allen? I think there's a legitimate 
case to be made that they all could be. They're all really talented in different ways for sure, but they all have the makeup of being a franchise quarterback in the NFL. They all have flaws as well. Mac Jones is pretty limited when it comes to physical skill. Zach Wilson has a big adjustment coming from BYU and not failing the Jets franchise. And Tua has a lot to prove after what he put on tape last year and some of the comments he's made this offseason about not knowing the playbook and all those types of things. I mean, there's concerns about all three of those guys. But I'm not going to sit here and write a death sentence for these guys. They, they all have talent, and they all have good coaching situations. I really like what all three teams have in terms of coaching. I like the commitment that each team has to building around those quarterbacks. So I think there's a good chance that they all could be the answer. So while I do think that Josh Allen is the best quarterback right now, and I think he will be for a long time, I don't want to be dismissive that the rest of the division hasn't found their answer too. But even if they have found their answer, it's not nearly as exciting as Josh Allen. And simultaneously, I can see all three of them failing. Nicole says, I was listening to the Bruce exclusive podcast from this last Friday, and they were talking about a few Bills players and if they do or do not reach their ceiling this year. The two players that caught my attention were Tremaine Edmonds and Ed Oliver. The guest on Bruce's show explained that due to Tremaine's age and talent, that him not reaching his ceiling this year wouldn't be worrisome. However, he explained that with Oliver, it would be worrisome if he didn't reach his ceiling this year, mainly due to depth. Do you agree with this? Would also love to hear your opinion on when those players not reaching their ceilings would be worrisome to you. All right, this is interesting. Between Ed Oliver and Tremaine Edmonds, which one would I be less worried if they didn't reach their ceiling this year? I'm leaning towards Ed Oliver. And I'm not sure it's because of depth. It's just that because I think the player that Ed Oliver is in terms of his pass rush ability and what he showed as a run defender in 2019 makes me pretty satisfied with where he's at. So that's kind of the angle that I look at it from. I know that both of these players have a, a massive ceiling to grow into, and they can both get a lot better. But which player in their current state am I more satisfied with? And I think it's Oliver, because I think we have two seasons of really good pass rush from him. When it comes to Tremaine Edmonds, his current status quo player is one that would make me a bit nervous to continue working with. So because of that, and that Edmonds has been in the league for three years, they're both young players, but Edmonds being three years in and Oliver being two years in, that's why I lean towards Edmonds. I want them both to reach their ceiling this year, and if they do, goodness gracious, how much would that matter for this Bills defense? matter a ton. Now, your follow-up was when those players not reaching their ceilings, would it be worrisome to me? Well, for Oliver, I'd really like to see it this year because the Bills have to make that decision on his fifth-year option. Tremaine Edmonds is locked up for the next two seasons. I feel like he's a bit younger and has more time. 
where you want to feel good about committing that money to Ed Oliver in year five and year four and year five because both become fully guaranteed, you want to see that happen this year. So for Oliver, it's this year. For Edmonds, certainly by the end of next year. But I think they can both do it this year. Ryan says, I am moving to Charlotte from South Carolina and know that there is an oddly high number of Bills fans in the Queen City. So this may be applicable to fans in the area. Where is the best place to watch a game? I've heard Tavern on the Tracks gets rowdy, and Bizantes has comparable Buffalo Wings and even Beef on Weck. Would love to hear any recommendations from a native Charlatan. Now, first thing I want to clear up here is I'm not a native Charlatan. I'm a native Buffalonian, but I live in Charlotte. I was born and lived the first 11 years of my life in Western New York. So native, I'm native to Buffalo. I live in Charlotte. Um, yes, there are tons of Bills fans in Charlotte. And if you wear something with a Bills logo on it and go to the grocery store or anywhere, a restaurant, somebody in that establishment is also going to be from Buffalo and they're gonna you're going to have a conversation with them. They're, you're going to talk about where you're from in Buffalo and reminisce on Western New York. So, Yes, it is heavily saturated with Bills fans, and because of that, you have a lot of Buffalo-style restaurants. Uh, you mentioned two of the heavy hitters, Tavern on the Tracks and Bizantes. Now, when it comes to food, those are great places to eat. I, I, I like them both for different reasons. Uh, Bizantes has long been probably my favorite place to get Buffalo-style wings and you know, pizza and beef on wick and, and all of those specialty type items. I have recently found Taste of Buffalo in Huntersville, and it is wonderful. It is my new favorite. The wings are perfectly cooked. They're crispy. They're wet. They're delicious. Pizza is on point. Ingredients are, are spectacular. Perfectly charred pepperonis. And so I, I'm really feeling Taste of Buffalo. Now, when it comes to where to go to watch a game, I don't know the answer to that because I watch Bill's games at my own house. Now, I know Tavern at the Tracks, Bizantes, I'm sure Taste of Buffalo give you that opportunity to be with other Bill's fans and watch the game, but I can't tell you from firsthand experience what that's like. Now, there was a time in my life where I went to Township Grill, which is in Matthews, North Carolina, and watch the games there, and had a lot of fun, and enjoyed doing that. But um, it's 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 been a long time since I went to an establishment to watch a game. I, I prefer to watch them in the comfort of my own living room. Except for week four. Except for week four this year, my wife and I are going to be at Highmark Stadium for the Houston Texans game, and I cannot wait to meet a ton of you guys and um, watch the Bills beat the Houston Texans live and in person. So. I can help you with the food component of this, but in terms of where to watch the game, I am not an expert at that. All right, folks, that is going to do it for us today here on the podcast. I certainly hope you enjoyed Herd Mentality. I always do. I always feel very grateful that you take the time to ask me questions and that you care about my opinions. And so thank you to everyone who took the time to ask a question. That is going to do it for us today here on the podcast. As always, I kindly ask that you rate, review, share, subscribe to the podcast. All of that stuff is very, very helpful. Have a great day. 
and I look forward to catching up with you again tomorrow.